Yes, we are back and better than ever. This is the Sitcom Club. I'm Mooncat. Yeah, I'm going to go retro. Who are you over there? I am Mr. Tilted Isa. Oh, you're Ocho. Come off it. We're here. We're here where it all began. And we've returned to the world of sitcom, the sitcom universe. This is one of our occasional specials in 2016. And the occasion in this instance being that it's Easter. Well, hey, it's Easter weekend. It means something very special to me in a sitcom-related sense, because it reminds me of the first time that I saw the greatest sitcom ever made. So in 1998, I just got cable installed, and the first weekend after that was Easter weekend. Well, hey, so I'm having a good old channel surf on the Thursday night, because it's nothing like that Thursday night, is it? You know, the Thursday night before the long weekend. It's lovely, isn't it? And would you believe it? I was watching 321 on Challenge, but in the process... I was nipping over to all the channels during the advert breaks, and there on Carlton Select at midnight was the very first edition of Doctor Down Under. And there it was. I was hooked. Didn't have a video at the time, so that was my first day midnight appointment each week from then on. And that was the run where I saw the episode that has no dialogue in the last half of the show. <laughs> last half lasting for two minutes, 33 seconds. Outrageously, they actually discovered later on that that wasn't entirely correct. That it was just that it was nodding off. And here we are, and we're talking about sitcoms, and everything's right with the world. Because, you know, I know on Jaffa Case, we always talk about all our things, and I've done some funny old stuff on that show, you know? But, but here we are, we're home. You know, it's like a big old, lovely, roaring fire in the middle of winter. You know what I mean? Not really. I know that you had a bit of a breakdown last time. Because we That's were pretty at- much how I felt, you know? I'm sick of sitcoms. But there are still things left unsaid about sitcom, and I can't be too slack about that. There are still things to be talked about. But sitcoms are not my central passion in life. Well, I can't understand that, but I'm learning to live with it. We did actually sort of dilly-dally a bit, didn't we, about what we were going to talk about in this the first sitcom oh, of 2016. Dear, it was terrible. We did actually go back and forward, dear listeners. There was there was a lot of ideas thrown around on our worksheet because we've got like basically like an RTF. And really, file things and that Dropbox we and... one of us would feel, yeah, great. We've got it sorted now. Feel good about this. And then the other, nah, don't want to do that. What were our rejected ideas? We're going to do Potter, weren't we? We're going to do Potter, Arthur Lewis sitcom, Roy Clark. I didn't want to come back with Roy Clark. I didn't want us to be too. Inward-looking, backward-looking, in original old-style flavoured sitcom club. We did a lot of Roy Clark, and it seemed like we talked about Roy Clark a lot, and Esmond and Larby, and those are good things to talk about, but I didn't want us to come back being too obvious. What was that one that you suggested to me? You sent me one that I think I just outright said no. You said, do you want to see all of this? And I think it was something like there was six series worth of it or something like that. Oh, watching, that was it. Right, no, no, watching, that... I wanted us to do watching at the end of the year, because I thought, that's months and months for us to watch all 56 episodes. I don't want to watch all 56 episodes of watching in well, the space of a year. I don't want to watch it's, sitcoms. It's... Can I go now? Well, no, you can't. You're here, and, and we're committed to this, and we're going to give it our all. And that is the line in the song. Anyway, right, now... Having gone through this laborious process, we eventually decided, okay, well, what's simultaneously sort of with it and now and happening, but also is retro? And so what did we come up with? David Jason at ITV, as people have probably seen in the tweets and in the ID tags for the MP3. So Darling Butter May, what did you make of that? 
It's not really a sitcom. Touch of Frost. I also thought that as well. Thought it was a bit doer. Not too many laughs. Needed a, a laugh track, really. Hucket Barker, not a David Jason vehicle. We focused on three shows that were David Jason starring vehicles, made at ITV. That strange thing of famous obscurity. David Jason is one of the more famous actors produced in the latter half of the 20th century, in his home country at least. And yet, for all that his name could sell anything, there's a big chunk of his career right up until Only Fools and Horses seems like something of a footnote. But the only thing that really gets any attention pre Only Fools and Horses is Open All Hours. And of course, he was still doing that after Only Fools and Horses began. Really, these are all pretty much self-contained, aren't they? Because you didn't see David Jason turning up on ITV until I think it was about 1989 when A Bit of a Do began. And that's the the first time when Only Fools and Horses sort of becomes a bit part-time. You know, there's not necessarily a new series every year. There's maybe a new series every other year. So then you had A Bit of a Do. And you did a lot of stuff with Yorkshire, didn't you? Because A Bit of a Do was Yorkshire. A couple of years after that was The Darling Buds of May, which was just a phenomenal success. I think it caught everybody by surprise. And BBC tried a lot of different shows opposite it to try and get eyeballs away from ITV on a Sunday night because, you know, Sunday night was really BBC's thing. And, of course, then Touch of Frost, which went on for years. So you've got this period, sort of 1974 through to 81, where David Jason's already a recognisable face. He's done his bits and pieces with Ronnie Barker. He's turning up on shows like Blankety Blank and what have you later on in the decade. He's also doing some bits and pieces on the radio, the Jason explanation. For Thank example, you for mentioning is... that. It just suddenly popped into my head. I'd forgotten about that temporarily. That's a show which does turn up fairly frequently on Radio 4 Extra. And we might as well address the elephant in the room. This is something which people have speculated about this for years. And there's never been a definitive answer. I don't know if we ever will get a definitive answer on it. But I know that you've got some written material there, Tilt, which you can reference. Basically, the reason that we're able to talk about these shows at any length is because they were all released by a network a few months ago. I think it was, first of all, Edgar Briggs and then Lucky Fella came out and then eventually Sharp and Take a Breath. Up until that point, these shows aired at the time and then weren't seen again. There were a few bootleg VHS dubs doing the rounds on the torrent sites and what have you. I'd seen a couple of Sharp Intakes and what have you. I think I'd seen maybe 10 minutes of an Edgar Briggs before. Because there were VHS covers circulating for Sharp Intake. Yeah, and there was a really good blog post by the writer's son about Lucky Fella, which was referenced on the show before, and he uploaded three episodes from his father's own collection. Otherwise, you just couldn't see these programs. People have wondered on forums and all sorts of places, is this something that David Jason wouldn't allow these shows to be repeated? Could he block them from being released on VHS or DVD or whatever it is? Simple trip of the matter is we don't know. At the time of Sharp Intake of Breath being due a VHS release, getting the covers designed and then vanishing, that would have been a time when David Jason could block a release. There was a time when one cast member could block a release of something. That time passed, Equity came to a different agreement, and still no sign of it. And one of the theories then was that at this point, David Jason was signed with ITV. ITV didn't want to upset him, so the possibility of these things getting a home release 
was swept under the carpet to keep him sweet. Once he's back at the BBC, these things come out. But that's just putting two and X together and assuming we're making four. I have next to me a copy of David Jessen's autobiography, and all three shows that we look at today he talks very warmly about. Gives no indication that they're an old shame, so was it something else that we weren't seeing that was stopping these? Was it the fact that he stopped them at the time and he's had a significant change of heart, or his reasons just aren't there anymore? Or did he bow to the inevitable, realising that he could no longer block them as an individual, so he just might as well say, yes, I had a good time and everybody was wonderful to work with? A couple of things on that. One, we've got, and I mentioned it before, there's a blog by Dominic Frisbee. DominicFrisbee.com is the address. And he talks about Lucky Fella in there, which was written by his father, Terence Frisbee. Now, this is a quotation from the blog in which he quotes Terence Frisbee directly. In spite of the viewing figures, Lucky Fella was barely noticed by the people I wanted to see it because it had gone out earlier in the evening and ideally he wanted to go at 9pm. A few years later, they found a slot and wanted to repeat it, but David Jason, who was a big star by then in Only Fools and Horses and had contractual rights of veto, stopped them. I don't know why. There were a lot of actors less successful than David who were quite unhappy that he blocked it because they could have done with the repeat fees. I cannot think why TV contract departments gave that right of veto away. Taking that on board, one of the instances it's often quoted discussing this kind of situation is the professionals and martin shaw and i think it was about 1996 there was a documentary about the professionals on channel 4 and martin shaw actually said in that i'd love to see them repeated which sort of flew in the face of this and i suspect that what's going on there is perhaps martin shaw was asking for a certain amount for repeats to be shown and that was higher than the companies were willing to pay and so on the thing about this is that within a year of that Granada Plus started, and they were showing the professionals there all the time, like multiple times a day. So whilst I can understand that perhaps David Jason was able to block repeats on, say, the main channel and so on, and perhaps even VHS or DVD releases, it did always puzzle me a little bit that you never saw any of these shows turn up on Granada Plus, which would have been an ideal place for them, or UK Gold, or anywhere like that. So it is a bit of a puzzle. Now, you had an idea about this, didn't you? because you were thinking that perhaps because David Jason latterly spent a long time at ITV, I think under perhaps Golden Handcuffs deal. That wasn't my idea. That was an idea that came from somewhere else, probably the Mausoleum Club message board. Right, few thoughts I'm juggling in my head. Back in the old days, I think it would have been easier to block a VHS release than it would have been a repeat. I think a certain number of repeats would have been written into the contract, unless maybe there was a time limit rather than a repeat limit. I'm not sure how easy it would have been to stop Lucky Fella getting a second showing, unless it said this has to be repeated three times or until January 1st, 1980, whichever comes first. That would be one possibility. The repeat fees for cable and satellite are a lot lower as per an agreement, so I think maybe there was less of a chance of asking for too much money. I wish I'd known about this. I wish I'd researched this. I thought this was going to be something we dealt with in the first five minutes and then quickly moved on. And this is a whole complicated world we found ourselves in. Well, I think that that's the point, isn't it? Is that it really is very, very complex, a subject. And the one issue that always comes up, if it's not Martin Shaw and the professionals, then it's Rodney Bues wanting the Like Lads to be repeated. Rodney Muse on one hand says, oh, James Blom's blocking repeats. I watched The Like of Lads on BBC Two in the mid-1990s. 
for goodness sake. It's been on BBC4 recently. I don't get it. If there's somebody out there who really knows the intricacies of all this kind of thing, please get in contact because it's quite obvious that we don't. But anyway, I thought it was just worth mentioning right at the outset because, let's face it, it's a little bit strange that these shows have been around for 35, 40 years and then suddenly, within a matter of months, they all get released on DVD for the first time. It was worth addressing that. But anyway, we're going to talk about the shows in order. And I put forward the controversial theory to yourself till the other day that perhaps these shows improve as we go along. I'm not sure that you necessarily agree with that, but we'll see. Sitcom rests on a number of pillars. Plot or format. Plot and format might sometimes be separate. There are a number of plots within a format. Gags and character. And all those really have to come together beautifully to make a really A-list sitcom. And I don't think any of these three have them all going on at once. So I'm not sure if it's really a matter of them getting better and better. So the first show is the top secret life of Edgar Briggs, who is one of those secret agent fellas who we've discussed previously on the other podcast. That we Can we do. just mention we how we watch these? We watched three of Edgar Briggs and four of the other two series. We didn't watch the whole things from beginning to end. We saw three episodes of Edgar Briggs. Now, Tilt, can you tell us, first of all, what is Edgar Briggs, what year is this from, who's making it, so on and so on? Uh, from 1974, The Top Secret Life of Edgar Briggs is a show about an incompetent spy who has, and I think it's according to David Jason's autobiography, says he's been promoted beyond his ability due to an administrative error. I didn't see any of that in the shows I watched. British get smart, really. Yes, I suppose He's so. an idiot, but he somehow comes through in the end. Nobody seems to notice that he saves the day through his idiocy, so he always gets a big handshake and comes up smelling of roses. One thing I've, I did actually quite like about this was that we watched the pilot of this, first of all, and the pilot was recorded on the 28th of December 1973. I would love to have been at a sitcom recording at the height of the power crisis in the three-day week. So I'm guessing that it must have been taped during the day because they wouldn't have been able to do it in the evening, presumably, because, you know, the restrictions on electricity and so on. So that would have been a lovely atmosphere to see a sitcom being recorded. I'm not saying I want that, that kind of thing to happen in 2016, but if it does, then I'll go along and watch Mrs. Brown's Boys being recorded at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So there's a lot happening in this show, isn't there? Remember what I said about our pillars? This is very much gags, gags. Here's a gag, right, let's have a gag. Edgar does something silly. It's relentless slapstick. Uh, you said it feels a bit children's BBC. There's a slight whiff of Rent-A-Ghost, but even more relentless than that. I felt that my senses were being assaulted constantly. That as soon as a gag was done, sometimes a gag might pause for a big laugh, round of applause, whatever it may be, but generally speaking, it was just gag. And before you even had time to react to that, there's another one, another one, another one. I think we would be having difficulties right now if we were trying to do the podcast about Edgar Briggs and we watched all 13 episodes. It felt like he was trying to screw up. Walking into a room and there's just a slight forced element. You know when you see an actor, I'm not necessarily blaming David Jason on this because some of his physical gags are really well done. There's a great one about leaning on the back of a revolving chair and ending up falling over. It's just done in one swift movement really well. But because there's just so many, that some of them, they're just forced. And it's actually, it's in the opening titles. Him trying to bring a bag into a cab with him and ending up with a French stick pressed against his nose. 
but he's holding the bag in such a way that he's making sure that the French stick gets right in place to push into his nose. <laughs> Actually, I think I would have preferred this show had it been dialogue free. If it had all been like the opening titles, where it's got the fast paced secret agent music and it's just cutting from scene to scene to scene, I probably would have preferred it. The Daily Mirror did compare Jason to Buster Keaton. It was a critical success. There was quite a warm review from, I think it was Peter Fiddick in The Guardian, where he was saying that he was unsure about it at first, having watched the first few episodes, but you know he could see the potential, obviously, in David Jason as a sitcom lead. The audiences didn't massively go for this. This went out on Sunday evenings. Was it The Brothers that was opposite on BBC? And that hurt it a little bit in the ratings, and eventually it got moved to opening up LWT on a Friday night. One thing I do like about this, actually, just, just as an aside, is we had our instance with your man in Brutal Saddles, the young fella who then disappears after the second episode. And we've got, as one of the members of the staff in the, I don't know, MI5 or what the hell it is, um, Gary Walton, who, of course, like one we see in Vicar Dibley and Brushstrokes and all sorts of things. He's only in two episodes out of 13, and yet he appears in the opening titles of the show. Who else do we have? We have Michael Stainton, who turns up in... Well, he's one of those supporting actors who turns up in just about everything. And, of course, he's the lead in Metal Mickey. We really must see some more Metal Mickey at some point. And Mark Eden, who is... What's his name? Out of Coronation Street, got killed by the tram. Alan Bradley. In one episode, Morris Perry turns up, who I know from Special Branch. But he does guest appearances. He's actually in an episode of Not Going Out, just playing an old man. I think he maybe has one line. He's fantastic in Special Branch because he's more sitcom-y in that than he is in Edgar Briggs. <laughs> Before any of his lines, he goes... <laughs> Pretty much before every line. Now, I should also mention as well, Noel Coleman. Because Noel Coleman, he's not a name that I suspect that most people are familiar with in terms of supporting actors and so on. But he's one of those people who just turns up here, there, and everywhere. He's in Doctor Who and the War Games. I believe so, with yes. With evil sideburns. I've seen him in Terry and June playing Bridge, I think it was, with Rachel Marsh. He is the husband of Joan Sanderson in the first episode of Yos, My Dear. And speaking of Joan Sanderson, he is then the chap who is a brigadier in Land of Hope and Gloria, who Sheila Ferguson then comes into replace. Oh, yes! So there you go. So, but yeah, but I'm just looking at his IMDb just now. He's just like he's got all these individual little parts in so many different shows. Been Mind Your Language and Many Ways of Patrick, Doctor's Daughters. Has anybody got Doctor's Daughters by the way on VHS? Because I'd love to see it. It seems a bit bonkers from everything I've ever read about it, and it's not available anywhere. I digress. Edgar Briggs, he gets up to all manner of larks. We put our fingers on it. I think it was during the first episode. The first episode has these nice caption jokes. It's not unusual for a spy program to start with, you know, London, SIS headquarters or something like that, or Moscow. And this one had, there's a bit where he has to go meet his superior who's in his gentleman's club and he's in the sauna room. And the caption keeps giving us an update on the temperature in the room. <laughs> there's another one that I've forgotten. I know there's another slightly Python-esque caption joke, but it's one of the problems with this. It feels like a sketch. 
there's a faint feeling of an end of part one sketch that's just going and going and going for the full just, half hour. I was just going to say that was exactly what I was thinking of, end of part one. Yeah, it could be like a skit in the Burkis way or something, couldn't it? We're very much still with the David Jason of Do Not Adjust Your Set. This should have really been Saturday night around about 6pm. I think it would have found a home there. It's got that kind of silly vibe about it, yes. Obviously it wasn't intended to be as such, but it is sort of like a children's sitcom, isn't it? So it could go out in that kind of metal Mickey slot where it can bridge the gap between... It's almost like somebody's watched the first five minutes of the first episode and then decided on its time slot. The first few minutes, it's a pre-credit sequence and it looks dead straight. Don't even have the audience reaction that sometimes spoils fake straight scenes in sitcoms. It's done. It's an underground car park and it, it could be Callan. There were some bits and pieces in this where you thought, blimey, I wasn't expecting that. Scenes where you've got like rapid cutting between different bits of the film. Particularly the end of one episode where they're all just faffing around at the back of the car. And it's like scene, cut, 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 cut. It's just, yeah, you're constantly being assaulted by it. And then it turned into Peep Show. Yes, that's right. Right at the end of one, this, we're suddenly seeing everything from a specific character's point of view. And in the case of Edgar Briggs, he's ducking from side to side and he's whirling his head around. So it gets very disorientating and dreamlike. And it's just meant to be a spy exchange at the East German border. I quite like that it's got that kind of silliness in it. I like that it does bend and occasionally break the rules. So there's a nice, suppose, continuity coming from things like do not adjust your set, that kind of silliness. Let's put our critical ideas to one side. I think we came at this maybe from the wrong direction. I think this is for watching a certain part of the day when your brain is tired. I don't think it failed to succeed because it was too sketch-like or too many gags or it was too silly. I think it was just poor scheduling. Far, far worse sitcoms than this got two, three, four series. Do you think that this is the same problem that afflicted Game for a Laugh in its last couple of years? Because Jeremy Beadle, remember he said about they moved it to Sunday night and he just thought, no, that's totally wrong. Game for a Laugh is a Saturday evening, early evening show. Hmm. That's what it is, silliness. It's not meant to be taken seriously and so on. And Sunday evening, Sunday evenings, you're sort of your Howard's Way and you know, you're... Last of the summer wine, songs of praise. That's yeah, exactly. Life. Yeah, yeah. You're not in the mood for this kind of thing on a Sunday evening because your mind's already on Monday morning. I do have one other note. I've just realised I haven't said. There are definitely moments when it's like, no, even he wouldn't be that stupid. That's just one note I've got here. He wouldn't be that stupid. Oh, you may have noticed over the last few minutes. I appear to have been thrashing around a bit and non-specific. It's because for some reason, as soon as we started talking about this. Most of what I saw just popped out of my head, vanished, and fortunately a little bit has popped back in. So there's a bit where they're agreeing upon a spy exchange at the East German border. They have an East German representative, I think a West German representative, yeah? Oh, we had um, Michael Scheer, didn't we? Indeed, yes. It was was a really good show for spotting faces because lots and lots of people turned up in this. Two people representing SIS. And at the head of the table, Edgar Briggs, who's overseeing the whole thing. They all have nameplates so that we know who's talking to whom. Edgar Briggs 
picks each one of them. See, this is Mr. Th- and then puts it in front of the wrong person. Just so deliberately. It's not done quickly enough or slowly enough. It really is just so that he can pick each one and put each one in the wrong place and then call everybody by the wrong name. That level of contrivance. But I don't think that was the reason it wasn't a success. Can I just finally point out that one of the episodes featured Judith Chalmers? Why didn't we watch that one? I don't know. Could have gone, we, oh, we, look, there's Judith Chalmers. I think you're right that we maybe were expecting something different. Not expecting too much, just expecting something different from this. And I suspect I'm going to come back to it at some point and actually watch them all properly. And maybe I'll warm to it over time. But yeah, Watch it with some kids. Well, yeah, I suppose so. I think it, it, it it's just daft and frivolous and what have you. And if, if that's your expectation going in, then you're not going to be disappointed. That being said, you did mention Metal Mickey. And we were so harsh on that when we did it. Here's the difference between Edgar Briggs and Metal Mickey. And I think I've probably said this on the podcast before. Sexual boldness. Uh, well, later, perhaps. But I can cite my interest in professional wrestling at this point. I've mentioned before that as a viewer of the sports entertainment genre, ideally you want to be watching it either alone or with other fans of the art form. You don't want to be watching it with people who aren't because guaranteed if it's an hour-long show, two-hour show, three-hour show, it doesn't matter. There's always a bit in a WWE show where if you were full of people, it's like, oh, God, oh, sweaty palms. It's usually going to be like an embarrassing attempt at comedy or something like that. And it's just that you know that there's eyeballs on you saying, so you watch this, do you? Now, Edgar Briggs, I don't think falls into that category. If you had Edgar Briggs on and somebody came in and said, uh, oh, well, that's a David Chase. No, that's quite a nice, silly wee show and what have you. If somebody walks into the room and you're watching Metal Nicky, no. It would be like, what's Gary watching? Why is he watching this? It's like having people actually start talking about you whilst you were still in the room. Do you know what I mean? So lucky fella. No, you've just left me the. You've hung me out to dry there. You, you've made. You've made no, you've made if, your point. It's good. Fine. It's a great point at which to leave Edgar Briggs behind. It's as if I'm the one with the problem. Now you you must have had this yourself, surely. I'm not. I'm not. Oh no, yes, yes. One. We've all had it. That's why it doesn't really need going in depth because it's time to get to Lucky Fella. Which has a very, very strong central premise. Oh, the world is so cruel. Well, it is, but the old lucky fellow himself, he doesn't. Well, he doesn't know won't hurt him, will it? So that's the thing, because this was a much more interesting show than Edgar Briggs, because it was something to get your teeth into. Because we had a plot, and unusually, I suppose, for a sitcom, we had a lot of characters who you really couldn't warm to very much. So every sitcom has its characters that you wouldn't want to be around in person or have as a next door neighbour or whoever it is but you can enjoy them on screen and usually sitcoms have perhaps characters who are just out and out wrong ones. You're not going to laugh along with them and you hope that they're going to get the carpets and so on. Now this was an oddity because there's poor old lucky fella himself just put upon and then everybody else... You're doing else, it again, calling characters by the name of the show. But everybody else is just horrible. I mean, 
really. I don't mean in an overt way. It's not like everybody's putting it on sort of pantomime villain style, but the more and more that you see the other characters, the, the less and less that you like them. Different ones you, you take against them earlier on and what have you, but they are some really harsh lines and just actions towards Fella in this. So before I say Fella again, okay, what is Lucky Fella's name? Shorty Mepstead. I can't remember his proper first name. His brother is Randolph. Randy Mepstead. Hang on a second. We've got to mention this in passing. Who is his brother in the pilot episode? <laughs> Why, it's Nikki, number one of the Secret Service Henson. In the pilot, they're giving it plenty. <laughs> I'd like to think that this is actually Charles Bynes' home life. Because, okay, right. So we did mention the end of the other one, didn't we? Didn't we mention the end of the other one when we discussed that one? Or did we skirt around it? When, when we mentioned the end of the other one in the other, yes, one. exactly. But we did, we didn't say, "Oh, we're not going to tell you what happens at the end." We did, we did discuss what happens. Oh, at the end, th- yes, yeah. yes. The problem here with Lucky Feller is that there is definitely an arc to this. Oh, I've just remembered what it is. Oh, 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 brambles. Wow. So similar to the other one, where we finally see what Richard Breyer's home life is like. I like to think that this is Charles Bynes' home, <laughs> basically. So we never get to see this in the film. And he's out and about doing all these agent stuff during the day, and then he comes home and... Well, we watch the pilot because he's not carrying it through to Lucky Fella. Nicky Henson is only in the pilot. As much as we're talking about how harsh and cruel and utterly, utterly unfair the series is, the pilot's worse because Shorty's mother hates him. Yeah, because it's Elizabeth Spriggs, isn't it? It's his mother in the pilot. That's it, yes. And the whole thing is is that she's cooking eggs, boiling eggs, and she gives Shorty, and he has a proper name, I'm sorry, she gives Shorty his eggs, and he says, they're runny. She gives them, they look coddled, not even cooked. And he says, I don't like runny eggs. Your brother likes runny eggs. Well, why don't you put my eggs in first? And Oh, oh if I haven't got enough to do. That is fortunately changed for the series, and it's just that... Shorty's just not quite good enough. He'll get a little bit of praise, but his mother's interest is more focused on Randolph, but it's not out-and-out hatred. He's not the unfavourite. So we've got, in that pilot, we've also got an appearance from somebody we weren't expecting. Again, this is lack of research on my part, I apologise, but can anybody tell us when Sylvester McCoy became Sylvester McCoy? Because he's Sylvester McCoy in this. He's also Sylvester McCoy in Vision On. But at some point before he becomes Doctor Who, he's turned into Sylvester. So where did he get the R from? When did this happen? Let us know. Because originally Sylvester McCoy was the name of a character he was playing, and it was just felt it would be extra amusing to say Sylvester McCoy as himself. So that's how Percy James Kent Smith, known to his friends as Kent Smith, became Sylvester McCoy. And presuming that reviews just started referring to him as Sylvester McCoy, and it made sense to keep the name going. And the pilot episode then became an episode in the series itself where we've got some cast changes. And in that version, Sylvester became Mike Grady. But the character he's playing is still called Sylvester. Write that down. What? Nothing. <laughs> was, that, was that an instruction to the listeners? Write down the name Sylvester because yeah, we'll be coming back to it later on. boringly factual. 
Who cares about any of it? Because it's just such a horrible show. So for those of you who wish to sit down with Lucky Fella and follow it from beginning to painful, painful end, you might want to skip this, just press stop on your MP3 player, or if you can, jump forward in the file, because I think we need to talk about the nasty part of the premise. In fact, let's get the nasty part of the premise out of the way in the next minute or so. There's Shorty, and on a train journey he meets Kathleen, and eventually Shorty and Kathleen start going out. However, Shorty's brother, Randolph, and Kathleen have, you know, behind Shorty's back, and eventually Randolph ends up telling his mother that this is a case, and so basically everybody in the family all know that this is happening. Here's the thing, Randolph gets Kathleen pregnant, Shorty is led to believe it's his, the last episode is they're going to get married, he's going to make an honest woman of her, and raise another man's child as his own, without knowing. And let's just say that the last shot of the last episode is Shorty getting punched in the face <laughs> when he's expecting his beautiful bride to be there to gaze into his eyes with unvarnished adoration. He did not expect to get assaulted by Dave the Barman. And that's the problem I have with this because we're just watching Shorty get tortured unknowingly. It's the irony of the title. He thinks he's, he's met a wonderful girl and the wonderful girl doesn't really love him. Yeah, that's also a particularly cruel aspect because it's not like Kathleen and Randolph was like a one-night stand and she really regrets it and what have you. She's hanging around Shorty because she wants to be with Randolph. Randolph doesn't want to be with her. So, yeah, Shorty is getting the, the raw deal. I, I think out of everybody, I find his mother's attitude towards him the most unsettling. There's one line at the end of the first half of the first episode this is in the series, not the pilot. They're having an argument because it's, it's Mother's Day and Shorty's trying to do something nice and Randolph's spoiling it and what have you. She suddenly says, I wish I'd never had you, either of you. And then the next thing you know, they're all on a train and they're going to have a lovely day out and, and, and what have you. That's that kind of line where only in a sitcom could you have a line delivered like that and then it's shrugged off within a matter of minutes. That kind of line would be a turning point and a play for today or something like that. And when... She finds out from Randolph and Kathleen what's going on. She still keeps it to herself. She doesn't tell Shorty. And you... She's cheerfully conspiratorial with Kathleen. Yes, and they're sort of they're, they're laughing about it behind his back. Enough's enough. You, you're really you're rooting for Shorty, and you actually just want Shorty to basically take a baseball bat to everyone else around him and just assert you know, can, himself. Can, so you know what we've we've got. All this way through, and I think there's something we haven't really said. David Jason's really great, isn't he? Really gifted. He is. Yes. Because there's a scene in this that indicates the sitcom I want to be watching, which is just interplay between David Jason and Cheryl Hall. He's trying to look cool and he's failing, but it's kind of cool in how he fails. It's the fact that he's not getting completely flustered. He's making a fool of himself, but he's just ploughing on. Taking a bite of a sandwich, pulls the bread away and the meat stays in his mouth and he stuffs it in his mouth. And it, it's funnier than it sounds. Kathleen comes across as very naive. Remember way back when and we were talking about endings? Or was it when we were talking about open all hours and we talked about the idea of breaking open all hours? 
I think at the point we were saying this, we knew that Still Open All Hours was coming. I was like, this, set that aside. Let's talk about setting Granville free from the format. And there's a slight indication of that in Open All Hours, which is his relationship with Julie. She thinks he's cool, and he's not. He's so obviously not to us. And yet, Julie thinks he's cool. He can't be that bad. It's the plucky little underdog. We're laughing at him and with him at the same time. Have you ever kind of laughed at somebody and then they've got discouraged and it's like, whoa, whoa, no, no, hang on, hang on. I'm not putting you in your place. I'm laughing at the indomitability. You keep going and you keep feeling good about yourself, mate. So there's a show in here about David Jason playing somebody naive who is with somebody more naive than himself and just keeping his ears above the waterline. <laughs> And it's just a really fantastic moment. And there's chemistry between Jason and Hall. And it has to be spoiled. Not spoiled by Peter Armitage, who plays Randy in the series itself. I think he's Kevin Webster's dad in Coronation Street. Okay. And I was talking to the listener there. I was trying to build a bit of rapport between me and the listener. You just butted in. You effectively pushed the listener out of the way. Uh, hang on, whilst you were speaking, I was one of the listeners. You are Randy, and you've made the listeners into Shorty. <laughs> In that case, I withdraw don't, my comment. Don't let him get to you. He's like this. I've been working with him for a few years. You don't want to hear the stuff I have to edit out. Well, there's a reason we do this on separate continents. Because, to be honest, it's not even like recording together. We never fight in the green room ten minutes beforehand. Peter Armitage's Randy is more likable than Nicky Henson. Can I start listening he again? I was, I, was away, I was away. Can I start listening again? It's not about you. Right now, it's about Peter Armitage. You probably think this song. And we're about not you. Don't you. crucifying his career. Don't you? Do you know the best version of that ever recorded? The Odd Couple, Tony Randall and Jack Pugman. Oh, right. Yes, you were saying. That's it, really. Peter Armitage, Randy is a little bit more likable. He's. Jack the lad, but he's not quite rubbing Shorty's face in it. And I think that's as much a behind-the-scenes decision taken as it's not just Peter Armitage being naturally more likable than Nicky Henson. They've, they've obviously been given different direction. But he spoils it all. So the whole thing is, is they're trapped on a train together. They're taking their mother out for Mother's Day. Train gets delayed, ends up standing there, I think, about 10 minutes away from the station. Shorty strikes up a rapport with Kathleen. Kathleen has something of rapport with Shorty, but it's Randolph who really catches her eye. And then Randolph and Kathleen make the beast with two backs in the guard's van. And it, we see everything. Nothing is left, <laughs> left to the imagination. <laughs> no, actually, that's, no, actually, they just disappear and, and everything's fine. You ever seen West Side Story? No. You know the song Maria? Aye. Now, imagine if... Oh, I've forgotten his name, and I've seen him. I've seen him in person. And I've forgotten the other one's name. <laughs> I, can only, I can only remember Rita Moreno now. There were three of them. They were at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. I want to say Rab Butler, and then I want to say Ta Ross Tamblin. That's it. I have to go Rab Butler, Tab Hunter, Ross Tamblin to get there. <laughs> George Shakiris. George Shakiris is that? George Shakiris. That's his name, isn't it? George Shakiris is in West Side Story, and George Caloris is in Citizen Kane and Pathfinders in Space. George Shakiris. I think it's George Shakiris who sings Maria. Maria, I've just met a girl called Maria. Now, that 
moment in cinema, that moment in musical theatre, that would not be improved by seeing Peter Armitage with Maria in the background. <laughs> or indeed Nicky Hansen giving it plenty. <laughs> that song is all about the lifting of the spirits that comes when you're in love and the sheer cruelty. It's the juxtaposition of David Jason. And he's extra likable in this. He is, yes. At least the Randolph in the series, as you say, he, he's a bit more likable than Randolph in the pilot. The only way this would be worse would be if Randolph and Kathleen were actually just doing it every episode. I mean, Kathleen would just make an excuse. So I've just got about five minutes and you see you know, Randy in the background, pssst, and then you know, off they go into the airing cupboard or whatever. That would be horrible. And I mean, it's okay to question happy endings to do a twist on this but for some reason this just seemed cruel I didn't want to stay with this you need to have surely if you've got somebody who's put upon and is always a victim and what have you you need them to have some sort of comeback you know it's not really no you know what it's not really a love triangle I think that's the thing okay maybe it really is a love triangle maybe I don't know what a love triangle is but there's a side missing in this love triangle Shorty loves Kathleen, Kathleen loves Randy, and Randy likes the pleasures of the flesh. If Kathleen had some feelings for Shorty, it would be slightly different. If she was torn between two lovers, maybe I could watch it a bit more. And for all that I said, I'll deal with the bad bit, the big spoiler. Actually, I'm going to do another spoiler again because I think I want to talk about the ending we got, and the ending that we could have had. But before we get to that, I'd like to talk about a little bit of a link in the sitcom universe. Because I, I don't think, for all of her naivety, I don't think Shorty or Randolph are Kathleen's first boyfriends. She's had a boyfriend before. I think I know who it is. Oh? We know there's the episode where they're playing charades. You have to pick a film, and Shorty picks Jaws, nice obvious one. And then Kathleen has to pick a film. And the film she picks is I Love You, Alice B. Talkless. And I don't think you'd even heard of it, had you? I hadn't, and neither had anybody else in the living room when she was performing the charade. Can I confess that I actually got it before the answer was given? Because <laughs> I actually thought that she was doing Plan B from Outer Space, which I then realised was called Plan 9 from Outer Space, so that made it even less likely. But no, I, I have to admit, no, I, I was not familiar with... And this is Peter Why Sellers. Why would she know that film? Peter Sellers. Yes, Peter that. Sellers. Yeah. But for all that it was a relatively mainstream film. Why would Kathleen know that? I think she's been out with a film ball from that episode of Man About the House. Ah, I think he's taken her to a Peter Sellers film festival. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is perfectly feasible. Okay, we can make this sitcom more enjoyable. I know you've still got a point to make about the end, but I'm just going to suggest something just now. We can make this sitcom more enjoyable by making another one much less enjoyable. Now, do you want to do that, or do you want to stick with what we've got? And for the purpose of the discussion, your answer should be, let's do that and not stick with what we've got. Let's do it! Let's go! Okay. Let's make things worse! Now, this is irreversible. So once we've done this, right, this is it. Okay? So we're going to give Shorty basically a bit more about him. He's not going to be so utterly naive and put upon and what have you. We're going to make him a bit more aware. He's not going to be completely self-aware, but he's going to have a bit more wherewithal and he's going to eventually sort of work out what's going on around him and what have you. Going to swap Shorty with Granville. There. Done. Cannot be reversed. Now, 
in Arkwright's store, we've got Shorty, who not only is he basically been sort of put upon by his uncle and he's working these awfully long hours and what have you, and he's got all this toilet cleaner in his bedroom and what have you, but he doesn't even realise it. He doesn't complain to Arkwright. He just accepts it meekly and carries on every day. How much would you hate Arkwright if that was the case? (laughs) This is just what needs to happen, isn't it? Shorty needs to be Granville. But we don't want to lose Granville from opening all hours. So so we put Granville in Only Fools and Horses, and we'll put uh, Shorty in Open All Hours. So where does that leave Del Boy? He's in Lucky Fella. Touch of Frost. Go. He's in Lucky Fella. <laughs> okay. Right. So Del Boy's in Lucky Fella. I don't think that he, oh, would, boy. he wouldn't tolerate what's going on with Kathleen and Randolph, but he wouldn't have any time for this. I think he'd give her the elbow. When his blog didn't Dominic Frisbee compare Lucky Fella... With Only Fools and Horses. It's Only Fools and Horses with David Jason as Rodney. Yes, because you mentioned about how you've got similarities. I've still got it in front of me, so I'll quote it from the blog. It was uncannily similar to Fools and Horses, two brothers living with their mum slash granddad, surviving off their wits in council accommodation in south-east London. But the big difference was which brother David played. I don't think that Del Boy... Okay, he, he'd be interested in Kathleen, but as soon as he found out that there'd been some funny business going on, now, hang on a minute. We've had a love triangle with Rodney and Del Boy in the episode T for Two, haven't we? Or T for Three, uh, actually, it's called. Del Boy certainly wouldn't just sit back and accept it. But of course, what I'm saying, Shorty doesn't either because he doesn't know. Okay, I, this feels really terrible. This feels like punching down, but should we be losing our rag, losing our patience with Shorty? Do you not just want to grab him by the lapels and say, for God's sake, man, wake up, open your eyes, look what's going on around you? But you disillusion him, he would just break in your hands like a Fabergé egg. You've got to be cruel to be kind sometimes, haven't you? Firmness with fairness. Tried it, still doesn't seem to get through with you. (laughs) (laughs) So the ending, the last episode. Spoilers. The last episode is the wedding. It's going to be Shorty and Kathleen's wedding. And I'll leave one plot point behind. You can discover that bit for yourselves. But what you really need to know about this ending is is that Kathleen doesn't go through with it and legs it. Goes to the train station. For good and sufficient reasons, Kathleen's father gets angry at Shorty and Shorty hears the door opening, thinks that Kathleen is coming down the aisle and it's not, and he turns around and he gets punched in the face. Interesting list of guests at this wedding. Yeah, yeah I was going to mention this because this should be a prerequisite for all sitcoms as far as I'm concerned. But I think I actually said to you off air, I think there should be a prerequisite in life itself, but we'll, we'll, we'll explore that in more detail in a second. But no, basically everybody who's been somebody in the previous episodes in this series of 13 parts turns up at the wedding. Everybody. So we've got, for example, so there's an episode where they stay at a farm and the farmer and his wife are Michael Stainton and Prunell Scales. They're here. Bert Quauk is the waiter at the Chinese restaurant that they go to. He's there. We've got... <laughs> Saeed, didn't even like them. Saeed Jaffrey, who's running the laundrette. He's there. We've got Josephine Chusen, who's a customer in the laundrette. She's there. We've got... Who else have we got here? Harold Innocent. I don't even know who he was, because I haven't seen that episode yet, but he's there. And we've got the couple who... Randy basically threatened on the train because they were sitting in the reserved seats. They've turned up to the <laughs> wedding. 
I suspect if we look closely enough, we probably spot Bella Emberg as well, because she's listed, and probably Sylvester McCoy as well. So, yeah, I, as far as I'm concerned, every final episode of a series of a sitcom now has to feature everybody who's had any kind of contact with the principal characters earlier on. And there is actually, this is not really a spoiler, there are characters from earlier episodes of the Larry Sanders show who appear in the final episode and they basically just appear in a line backstage and they're just there and they're introduced to Larry and Larry asks Artie why did that just happen and Desari just says well it's just protocol you know it's just what happens effectively sort of saying that's what happens in the last episode of a sitcom yeah now I'd actually like to see this in everyday life where perhaps if you split the the year into the four seasons and at the end of each season so we can work out according to the calendar we can work out specific dates you know that's what happens everybody you've seen the previous 13 weeks just turns up and then you start afresh new chapter next day can this be arranged can we get to work on this would you like me to propose a happy ending to lucky fella would you like me to propose two different happy endings to lucky fella yes right one obvious one is simply that kathleen has cold feet has her doubts but eventually realises it's time to grow up. That Shorty, as much as he can't sweep her off her feet, that's not what she needs, that's what she wants. And so she goes down and she marries Shorty. That works in a version where she does actually have feelings for Shorty. It's divided feelings between the two brothers. One of them is sweep her off her feet and the other is comfortable, secure, dependable. Here's another one that's a bit more involved. Kathleen is having cold feet... She thinks about Randy. She thinks about Shorty. She bites her lip. She reaches in a drawer and she pulls out a pen and paper. I know what I have to do. We cut to the church. Shorty's getting anxious. Everybody's getting anxious. She's not there. She's still not there. Somebody comes in and hands Shorty a note. It's the piece of paper we saw earlier. He looks at it and goes, oh, okay, thank you very much. I just need to be by myself for a bit. And Shorty walks off and he walks to the vestry. So everybody's looking at each other. He's been stood up. He's got the dear John letter. He says, Randy says, I've had enough of this. I'm going to have to go have a word with him. Goes into the vestry. The window's open. Shorty's not there. Cut to the train station. They've eloped. Kathleen said, just sidestep all of it. I will sweep you off your feet. That was what the problem was. Somebody had to be swept off their feet. It didn't have to be me. The end. <laughs> I like it, yes. Yeah, this is nice. And it is preferable to the character that's been put upon for the previous 13 episodes getting punched in the face by Glenn Edwards. <laughs> that's a and That's the last 25 minutes of the episode. <laughs> you look like a porterhouse steak by the end. <laughs> you pornocrat! Uh, what, yeah, what was Gavin Campbell in the church? He should have been a guest. So, our final show, which was a big hit, a sharp intake of breath. Yes. Now, this was, I suppose you would say, the most well-rounded sitcom because, first of all, multiple series, four series, and they play about with little sort of devices throughout, ways in which the principal character can communicate with us. Never actually turned into full-on ESP, but it's the one show, out of all three of these, I think it's the one that would do really well if, say, ITV3 was to pick it up. 
I think it would be one of those ones that would just end up going into general circulation and just playing all the time. Because it's a traditional sitcom, fairly broad, the character is well-rounded, like we said, and got a good supporting cast. One, one odd thing about this is that you've got the same players turning up, but not always as the same character. So Richard Wilson appears. I think he was in, was he in every episode that we watched? And yet he's a different character each time. So it's like a, a sort of repertory company. It's, it's, it's an odd situation. The lead character is Peter Barnes, and you think it's fair to say that Richard Wilson plays all the middle-class people who dog Peter Barnes, and Alan Armstrong plays all the working-class bins of his life. Yes, pretty much so. I didn't laugh very much at this, and yet I can see why it was a hit. It did hang together. I was going to say it was all fairly Terry and June-ish. Oh, it's a problem, and oh, you can't get any help these days. But there are curious bits where they seem to push it further than other normal mainstream sitcoms at the time. There's one bit where his wife threatens to divorce him and he's actually got to the stage where he's talking to a solicitor. They press the reset button at the end. It doesn't happen, but the tone of the thing, and as far as it goes, felt not out of sync. It was an interesting combination. And we also have not out-and-out adultery, but he is taking a girl on a date while he thinks his wife is away. I think that unreality caused by him meeting the same people again and again in different roles, it's almost as if each episode exists inside itself. It's like a separate individual little playlet, and don't bother thinking about it next week, even though there's been a betrayal of trust that the, the marriage would never recover from. Now, forget it. Yeah, again, it, it, it's like we said earlier on about like the particular line cited in Lucky Fella, there's, there's certain things that you can do in sitcoms which in a drama, would cause things to suddenly grind to a halt. But I think that the other vehicle where you can get away with that kind of thing is in soap operas. Because if you actually tally up the number of different things that happen between (laughs) the same block of characters over maybe X number of years or so on, then any one of those events or instances would be the the basis for a single play or a single film. And you, you get those like daft things that turn up in the papers every once in a while and says, oh, how unlucky the residents of Ramsey Street. All these terrible things have happened in the last five years, all this kind of stuff. What I always like is divorced couples who live in the same street and they live in the same street long enough they get remarried. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just like everything just comes around after a while. If you're there for like 30 years. But one of the episodes that we saw was actually written by Kenneth Cole. Well, he wrote some episodes of The Dustbin Men. He did indeed. On IMDb, it actually explains a little bit about the situation here, because the final episode that we saw from Series 4 has definitely got a different tone to it, and that's because this show was principally written by Ronnie Taylor, and Ronnie Taylor's death caused the third series to be prematurely cut short. I think there's only three episodes in that. And then Series 4, Vince Powell takes over writing duties. And it actually says here that the first Vince Powell's script is actually a reused plot from Bless His House. There was definitely sort of, there was bits and pieces when they went again in Chinese restaurant. Almost comes back to Chinese restaurants for some reason. And there's, there's lines and remarks in there which are sort of typical of Vince Powell sitcoms, but you don't get them in the, the earlier episodes at all. Didn't you mention in the autobiography this is the show that he really liked out of all three of these? He mentions how in the reviews of Lucky Fella, I think it was the review in The Stage, 
it says that David Jason has not yet found a writer who can write to his talents. And he felt that with Ronnie Taylor, he'd found that person. He was really looking forward to a long, fruitful relationship. And he took Taylor's death very hard. So you said we've got the supporting cast of Richard Wilson and Alan Armstrong. We've also got Jacqueline Clark playing Mrs. Barnes. Patricia Brake was originally Sheila in the pilot because this came from one of the many ITV copycats of Comedy Playhouse that did the rounds throughout the 70s and even into the 90s. This was initially a single pilot as part of a series called The Sound of Laughter from 1977. And it's got quite an unusual title sequence because we've got these nice little cartoons by Mel Kalman. And they're actually they're, they're personalised, aren't they? So Ralph Ra- yes. Negger Briggs, which has the same funny title sequence every single episode, has actually got a separate little cartoon for each. Well, to compare Sharp Intake with Edgar Briggs, we get physical humour. There's the whole bit of Barnes gets himself trapped in a phone box and he's trying to get out and he's trying to ring the fire brigade to get him out. It builds slowly. He doesn't like throw himself into the phone box and try and throw himself out. It just shows how you do a physical, visual gag. But you have to see it coming. You have to have a slow approach. Because I'm not sure it's something that people particularly associate David Jason with, apart from one very famous bit of physical humour in Only Fools and Horses. We're almost back to Jaffa Cakes, looking at Lost Britain. Lost David Jason. David Jason, the physical comedian, the madcap, pratfalling David Jason. We get it in just the right dosage here, don't we? Because in Edgar Briggs, it's, it's, it's too much. It's, it's every other scene. But here, things are allowed to build up and scenes are allowed to develop. The only other show really subsequent to this where you've got pratfalls and that, and that type of thing is The Royal Bodyguard, which just sort of came and went. I never saw that. It was written by the same people who wrote Worst week of my life, and that was a show that had, I never saw. That. that was a show that had a lot of sort of broad humour, and not so much pratfalls as as more sort of awkward situations developing and that kind of thing. You sort of got the impression with the Royal Bodyguard that this was perhaps a show that would have been better suited for David Jason some thirty years previously, that it was suited for a younger David Jason. Actually, just briefly brushed up. Can we mention the ways of addressing the audience? Yes. Series one, it just plays out normally. Is it series two, we suddenly get a voiceover? Mm, yes. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Internal monologue, that's a perfectly natural thing. And nothing in series three of the one episode we watched. And then we watched a series four one, and suddenly he's in the bath and he's breaking the fourth wall. I would like to see David Jason in this do a Harvey Corman. Just ponder out loud what to do in this situation. Why am I asking you... <laughs> And just carry on about his business. But this is, I think this is the most enjoyable of the three shows we watched because you can root for Peter, but also he's not one-dimensional. So, yeah, he's he's put upon to an extent, but he can argue back and sometimes the situation he finds himself in is of his own doing, sometimes it isn't and so on. It's not too predictable from that point of view. It's not always going to be the same situation repeating itself. But I didn't laugh much. Why didn't I laugh much? I don't know. I'm not sure. I enjoyed it. I think that out of all the shows, it's probably the one that, like you said yourself, the way that the show is structured, it's perfect for, this show should be on Gold or ITV3 now because it's exactly the kind of show where you can just put out an episode of that and you don't need to have seen what's gone before or after. You can't do that with Lucky Fella 
and Edgar Briggs. Yeah, I suppose you could do that with Edgar Briggs. But anyway, so <laughs> Sharp and Tig, you can just, yeah, it can just go on. There it is. Just enjoy it. I'd like to see some more of them. Richard Wilson is always good, of course. Alan Armstrong is always good. And there was a couple of odd bits. There was a lot of spare acting. We had, we had nice spare acting at the end of each episode, which we always appreciate. Are we going to spoil the episode that involves some men in a cupboard? They're not in a cupboard, they're in a bedroom. Oh, yeah, yes, they are. You made it sound more interesting <laughs> than it is. I don't think it's really worth spoiling. Unless you have something devastatingly perceptive to say about all these men in a bedroom well, playing cards. I think I think it was more that you were slightly puzzled as to why they were still there playing cards, why didn't they just sneak out? Yes, yeah. Well, there's so many sitcoms where it's like, come on, that wouldn't happen. Even people in sitcoms should be more sensible than that. Well, if they're going to be daft about it, sitcoms. if they're, ah. they're going to be daft about it, then why not, instead of having them play cards, she walks into the bedroom, Peter's wife walks into the bedroom, and they've dismantled a motorbike and sidecar, and they're just like cleaning it all, the bits and pieces, and then reassembling and so on. Why not? They put the on her dresses, and they're pretending to be the three degrees. <laughs> And they're not even singing a Three Degrees song. That's the thing. They've just got the movements right. That's how you can tell what they're meant to be doing. This one's been picked clean. It's time to put it away. There we go. The Lost World of David Jason and his ITV sitcoms. So it's been nice, hasn't it? Being back in the, the sitcom universe. You may disagree yourself, but it's been lovely. It's been lovely revisiting the old place. Here's the question. What part was Bob Todd up for in Danger Mouse? It's mentioned in David Jason's My Life that he read for the part and was told Bob Todd would be working with him and didn't look forward to the prospect as he had had a slightly fraught time with Bob Todd on Doctor at Sea. So in the meantime, if you've got anything for us at all, you can always tweet us at The Sitcom Club. You can find us on Facebook as The Sitcom Club. You can find us at sitcomclub.com. But of course, if you're not already, and why ever would you not, you should be following us on Twitter at our new sort of regular pad, which is Jaffa's for Proust, which is, of course, where you find Jaffa Cakes for Proust on the first Friday of every month. And what's next up on the, the Jaffa Cakes late night lineup? On Friday, we will be looking at Pathfinders in Space, three series Pathfinders in Space, Pathfinders to Mars, and Pathfinders to Venus of science fiction from ABC Television that is before the most famous British science fiction long-running television show and has some similar origins. I've got to admit, dear listener, I, I don't actually know how this came about. I've, I've turned in the chance to watch Watching, and I've suddenly found myself watching like an ITV version of Doctor Who. I don't quite understand where I went wrong. So in the meantime, you can find all the previous shows, both Sitcom Club and Chaffers. You can find them all at podnose.com, where there's all manner of other lovely podcasts available as well. And there's a particular one called Cinema Limbo, is or not? That's a nod to next week, you see. In the meantime, Ocho, you've been tail. Yes. Gary, i.e. me, I've been Mooncat. And thank you very much indeed for listening to The Sitcom Club. We'll be back with you later on, May Day Holiday 2016.